So several years ago, I had my first opportunity to speak here at Southside Church of Christ, and I was asked to share a communion meditation. So I chose for the topic of my communion meditation the topic of excuses. And uh, the, the point that I was trying to get across was that when we come before the Lord's table, uh, we are stripped of all of the excuses that we have for sin, and we, we stand before him exactly like we truly are. That was the point that I was trying to convey and what I chose to do was I wanted to illustrate a couple of the excuses that I have heard in my career as a, as a police officer. And I shared one of my favorite excuses. And the excuse kind of goes like this, is that it'll ha- happen when a police officer is getting ready to search somebody and they have something in their pockets that they probably shouldn't have in their pockets. And the police officer asks them, hey, I'm getting ready to search you. Do you have anything on you that I need to know about? And the response that we sometimes get back is, I don't know, these aren't my pants. <laughs> and I told this story for two reasons, because I thought it did a good job of illustrating the point, and because I thought it was funny. And that's kind of my, my threshold for whether I'm going to tell a story or not. But what I didn't know when I told the story was that my identity at this church would forever be associated with the phrase, these aren't my pants. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to be connected to my de- identity. In fact, very recently, not that long ago, I had a gentleman come up to me at the church, and he said that he was telling his wife something about me. He was trying to explain who, he was, who I was, and he couldn't remember my name, and he was trying to describe it, and he said, he said, he's tall, he's bald, you know, these aren't my pants. And she said, yes, yeah, I know who you're talking about. These aren't my pants. So I don't know what it says about me as an individual that... My identity at this church is now associated with this really ridiculous excuse, these aren't my pants. But this morning, we're going to talk about somebody else in the Bible whose identity was also very closely linked to what they did. In fact, I would make an argument that apart from Jesus Christ himself, this person may have the most clearly established identity and purpose of anybody in the scriptures. Now, if you're paying to, uh, attention to the, the verse that was read earlier, you probably have already figured out that the person that we're talking about this morning is John the Baptist. And if I was going to ask you for some facts that you already know before we get into this about John the Baptist, who he was, you would probably come up with two things right off the bat. First would be what he wore, and second would be what he ate. And we learned this from Sunday school on. We, everybody learns about John the Baptist and The Gospels of Matthew and Mark both talk about what he wore and what he ate. It says that he wore clothing that was made out of camel's hair, and he had this big leather belt that he would wear. And his diet was locust and wild honey. Those are things that we generally remember about John the Baptist, but there's a whole lot more about him than his bizarre fashion sense and his diet. As we look deeper into scriptures, what we're going to see is that John's identity was tied to his purpose, and his purpose was to prepare the way for the Messiah. All four of the gospel writers talk about John, but the gospel of Luke especially spends a lot of time talking about the story of John. And I like the gospel of Luke because it starts the story at the very beginning. In fact, as the saying goes, it starts before John was even a twinkle in his daddy's eye. It starts the story all the way back at the very beginning. And there's this amazing account 
of this angel Gabriel appearing before this elderly priest named Zechariah. And he appears before the priest as he's serving in the temple, and he gives him this message. He tells him, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. He tells them that in spite of how old they are, this son is going to be uh, the fulfillment of a prophecy. He goes on to establish both the identity and the life purpose of John. Listen to the words of of Gabriel to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And with these words, both the identity and the purpose of John are established directly from a messenger of God. And despite an initial response of doubt from Zechariah, everything that the angel tells about John comes true. When John is born, his, his, his father, Zechariah, who had actually lost his ability to speak because of his disbelief, he regains his voice, and the first thing that he says is this prophecy about his son. He names his son John. He gives this prophecy about his son. He says that the Savior is coming, and his son John would be a prophet of the Most High, who would go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. The Gospel of Luke records that that John grows and becomes strong in spirit, and he lives in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And then Luke draws this amazing connection. He draws this connection between John and the words of the prophet Isaiah from 700 years earlier. It says, The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And this is the focus of John's ministry. John's entire identity is linked to his purpose, and his purpose is to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, as we look at the life of John the Baptist, John John the Baptist, he sits as this kind of bookend in Scripture. You have these thousand years of these prophets leading up to this time of the Messiah coming. And John sits here at this moment, and, and Barrett did a great job last week of talking about the importance of this moment. He says that, uh, basically, the, the, the template of Scripture is that Jesus is here, and he explains how he is the fulfillment of all these prophecies, how all of the Scripture points to him. And John sits right here at this moment, this divider between a thousand years of history, a thousand years of prophecy, and the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of all these prophecies. The life of a prophet isn't an easy one, and John found that out very quickly. Despite his eccentric behavior and his appearance, uh, there was something about John that drew people to him. Luke records that, that the whole Judean countryside and even the people in Jerusalem, they come out into the wilderness to hear John and they confess their sins and they're baptized by him in the Jordan River. And just like so many prophets before him, John speaks a message of truth. He speaks a message of truth that is dangerous. Because he speaks a message of truth to the the leaders who have gone astray. And he speaks a message of truth even to the political leaders there. And John confronts them for the evil things that they've done. And he confronts uh, the tetriarch Herod because of his marriage to his brother's wife. And that results in John being imprisoned. 
And here's where we arrive at our passage here in, in Luke chapter 7. Now, Jesus has been baptized by John. He's been through the testing in the wilderness. He has gathered his disciples around him, and now he's begun his public ministry. And we pick up in chapter 7, um, where Jesus has healed the servant of a centurion, a Roman centurion. And he's remarked on the faith of that man, the belief that seemed to surpass anything that he had seen there in Israel. Jesus is traveling along with his disciples, and he's got this group of followers that is following him, listening to him. And we come to a town, he comes to a, a town called Nain, and as they're approaching the gate, there's a funeral procession coming out of the town. And there's a young man that's being led out of the town. He's being brought out of the town in this funeral procession, ready for burial. And there at the front of the funeral procession is the young man's mother. And she's a widow. So this son represents her entire future. And Jesus, it says that his heart went out to her. And he tells her not to cry. And he goes up and he touches the beer. And he tells the young man to get up. And he does. And of course, that catches the attention of everybody that's there, the disciples, the crowd that's there, especially the mourners that were there to bury the young man. And they begin to say, a great prophet has appeared upon us. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spreads throughout Judea and the surrounding county, and it, it comes to the ears of John the Baptist as he's in prison. You say, while Jesus is out uh, preaching and ministering and healing people, healing a servant, raising a young man back from the dead, John is still imprisoned. And he's, he's probably in this place called Macarius, which is a Roman citadel that was owned by the Herods. And listen to the description of this place. He said it was, it was this fortress that sat up on top of this rocky cliff overlooking the Dead Sea. And the actual interpretation of the, of the name for it was the Black Fortress. Uh, it's exactly the kind of place that you would expect a tyrant like Herod to live. Or maybe a Bond villain, like one of the two. It's either Herod or Bond villain is probably going to live at this place. But John's disciples go to the Black Fortress and they tell him about what is happening with Jesus. And John sends two of them to Jesus with a very specific question. Here's the question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Luke records that this isn't the telephone game. They, they, they relay it exactly to Jesus the way it's said. John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now I want us to spend a little time kind of unpacking this and examining this question because there's some really important points to it. First, I think there's a, a big significance to the fact that he sends two people out with this question. Under Judaic law, um, there was this principle that something couldn't be brought before the courts without at least two witnesses. So by sending two people out with the same question, he's essentially grounding this question in Judaic, Judaic legal principles. And there's two reasons for this. It's not just so that he can ensure that the question gets transmitted correctly, but also that he can trust the response that he gets back. This would be like us having a document notarized for veracity. He wants to know that he trusts the transmission and he can trust the response. So with all the attention that he puts on this question, we have to assume that he spends this equal amount of time framing this question exactly the way that he wants it to be put. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? 
As we examine this question, it would be very easy for us to be critical of the doubt and uncertainty that seem to be conveyed in this question. Before we write this off as just a crisis of faith that John is experiencing, I think we need to look closer, look at the situation through John's eyes. John's entire life has been devoted to preparing the way for the Lord. This has become his entire identity here on earth. And in response to his unwavering devotion to the truth, he is now imprisoned in the black fortress waiting for the judgment of Herod. While the the worst part of this is actually that John's vision is limited. The only thing that he gets to see of the outside world are these brief glimpses as his disciples come to him and tell him what's going on. And one day they return to him and they share this news about what Jesus is doing. But the part that really sticks in John's ear is the response of the crowd. A great prophet has appeared among us. And I don't think that that was good enough for John. Because the angel Gabriel didn't appear to John's father to give him news that his son was going to prepare the way for a great prophet. And Zechariah didn't regain his voice so that he could share about his son that he was going to go before another great prophet. John's entire purpose and his identity is wrapped around that purpose of preparing the way for the Savior. And I think that John's question doesn't reflect a crisis of faith as much as it reflects a crisis of identity. John had no doubt about his purpose. There was no doubt in his mind about his purpose. But with his limited vision, he cannot align his purpose on earth with what the crowds are saying about the identity of Jesus. John wants to reconcile this discrepancy. I think John needed to reconcile this discrepancy. So he sends two disciples out with this very important question to the man that he believes is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. And the nice thing is that we don't have to wait very long to hear what Jesus' response was. It tells us, Luke tells us that at the very time, well, his disciples, John's disciples come to ask him that question, Jesus is healing the crowds. Many who had diseases and sicknesses, giving sight to the blind. Jesus tells John's disciples, he says, I want you to report back what you see and what you hear. And then Jesus directly connects his ministry of salvation, his ministry of of healing, to the prophetic message of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 35. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And with these words, there can be no doubt about the identity of this man, Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of of Jesus' message back to John. He also finishes with this. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And I think that this part of the reply requires a little bit of examination. Um, I'm looking around. I know that we have several teachers uh, that worship here with us today. Out of curiosity, I'm going to make you do what teachers hate to do. I'm going to ask you, if you're a teacher, if you have been a teacher uh, in any kind of capacity, please raise your hand. Let me know how many we have out here. Quite a few hands going up. All right. So this question is specifically for the teachers in the crowd. How many of you 
have ever looked at your students in the eye and used the phrase, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Some of you are chuckling because I think you know where this is going. My second follow-up question for my teachers is this. How many of you have ever had a student that took that as a personal challenge that they were going to find a dumb question to ask you so that they could prove you wrong? I think that it probably has happened to quite a few of the teachers in here. We can be gracious and we can say, you know what, there's no such thing as a dumb question. But I think we all have to acknowledge that it's very difficult to respond to a question when we know that the person asking the question should already know the answer before they ask the question. And so I think it would be very easy for us to read this final part of Jesus' response and, and interpret it as kind of a backhanded comment to John. Most of us could probably relate to a response uh, under these circumstances, a sharp response. Maybe that response would be like, really, John? You are going to ask me that question in front of all these people. You've known me my entire life. How are you going to ask me this question? You were the one who baptized me. You were literally standing in the water when the heavens broke open and the voice came down from heaven proclaiming who I was. How could you ask me? How could you possibly question who I am? But I think that there's a lot more to Jesus' response. I think that Jesus identified or recognized John was having a crisis of identity and his message carried a, a message of confirmation to John. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, in Jewish teachings, they would often use this idea of blessings and woes as a literary device to be able to to convey contrast. Blessed is the man who does this. Woe to the one who does this. But you notice that, that Jesus doesn't put it in the form of a woe. Jesus doesn't say, woe to the man who doesn't, who stumbles on account of me, or woe to you, John for stumbling on account of me. Instead, he focuses on the blessings that come to those who don't stumble. Jesus had just told John's disciples to go back with this message about what they see and what they hear. And then he reveals that they are seeing the fulfillment of prophecy in front of their very eyes. And what they are hearing is that these blessings are being poured out on the people in large part because John fulfilled his purpose on earth and prepared the way for the Lord. We jump back to Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to the description connected with John. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground will be made level, the rugged plains, a place is a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. 700 years earlier, Isaiah gave this description of a road, a highway for the Lord, a road being built free of barriers and obstacles. And even though this prophecy came 700 years earlier, John's disciples and the people there could look around and see examples of what that looked like. You see, as John's disciples left uh, the, the, the black fortress as they were going to Jesus, they would have walked on a Roman road. And if you've ever studied about Rome, you probably already know the importance of roads as a technology for the Roman Empire. 
Well, the description that we just read in Isaiah could have been a blueprint for how the Romans constructed their roads. Where others would, would follow the natural course of a stream, uh, the Romans just picked two points and went straight there. That's pretty much how they designed their roads. They would use surveying techniques. And if any obstacles got in their way, those obstacles were leveled. Hills were dug down. Mountains were tunneled through. Swamps were, were packed down and leveled out. And even, even rivers, they would build bridges over them. And all of this took an enormous amount of effort and time. But they recognized that the time they put into it would pay off in the long run. And there were two main purposes for these Roman roads. The first one was military conquest, to be able to move, move armies around very quickly, move them from place to place to be able to take over areas. And the second reason was connection. You see, a citizen of Rome from almost anywhere in the empire could travel to the main city, to the capital city of Rome on one of the Roman roads. So places that were inaccessible now had resources and connection that they never had before. And all of this could have been taken directly from the pages of Isaiah 700 years earlier. And we can't know exactly from the description in the scriptures, but there's a chance that Jesus was standing on one of these roads or standing near one of these roads. When John's disciples approach with this question, he gives this response. Maybe he looks out over the crowd and he sees a, a man over here who was born blind. This man just saw the, the sunlight for the very first time in his life. Maybe over here is a woman and she can't stop staring at the skin on her arms because she's no longer covered in leprosy. And, John, and Jesus tells John disciple, John's disciples, you are seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy. These people are being blessed in part because John fulfilled his purpose on earth confirming the blessings that are being poured out to some of the most needy people in that time. And as John's disciples are getting ready to leave, maybe they hear just the very beginning of what Jesus says next. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who are dressed in fine clothes... Expensive clothes, they indulge in luxuries or in palaces. What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about who it was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, but anyone who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. And we don't know exactly what it looked like when John's disciples brought that message back to John as he was in prison. And unlike Peter years later, there was no great escape from Herod's prison for John. In fact, the door that opened for John in the middle of the night led to an executioner. John never got to see uh, the, the new covenant of the kingdom of God established. But even Herod couldn't silence the message of the final prophet of Israel. The way was prepared, the glory of God was being revealed, and blessings were available to all people. Now, I doubt that anybody here showed up today wearing a camel hair, hair suit and picking grasshopper wings out of your teeth this morning for your breakfast. 
And I know that nobody in here had an angel that showed up to your parents to tell them that you are going to be born and that you are going to be this child of prophecy. But I do know that there are people in here today who have, who have spent some time in some very dark places. Places where your, your future, your vision of the future has been very limited. Like John, some of us have had to struggle to reconcile our faith with the difficult circumstances that we have faced. Or maybe you're wondering about your purpose in life. And your question to God may be, does what I'm doing even matter? Do I even matter? This might be the most important thing I have to say today, so I hope that you hear this. The same Jesus that healed the servant and brought that young man back from the dead wants to heal you and bring you life. And the same Jesus who responded to John sends you a message of comfort and hope today. The way is open. There's a way to him through repentance. Those who truly seek him will find his blessing. If you feel his call in your life today, you desire to get to know him better, I would invite you to join us up here at the front. We're going to have a time of of worship and a time of invitation. Um, There'll be several of us up here near the front or after the service, if you'd like to find myself or one of the shepherds or one of the ministers, we would love the opportunity to sit and talk with you about that. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. The way has been prepared. The way is open today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you for the message that he brought. We thank you for the hope that he brought. We thank you for the way that he prepared for your son and the example that we see of hearts being changed, people's lives being changed. You've used so many people throughout history as a way to convey your truth, a way to convey your message. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to be that same conduit to the world around us this morning. Lord, we just lift these things up in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.